We're going to be spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show talking about something very, very ordinary and yet in some ways quite wondrous and something that is very, very easy to take for granted. In fact, just about all of us take for granted to a large extent butter. And yet it is something we should not take for granted. It is something uh, with a rich, fascinating history, and it plays a very, very important role in so much of what we eat and enjoy. And uh, I have come to a, uh, uh, a, a wonderful new appreciation for butter after reading an absolutely fascinating book called Butter, A Rich History. Uh, the book is written by Elaine uh, Kosrova, who uh, uh, is a proud graduate of uh, the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. She has uh, written extensively a- about food and cooking. Uh, she was an editor at Country Living Magazine, has written for uh, other uh, important uh, 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 journals and, and magazines as well, and uh, is... Uh, devoting her expertise and writing talents now to, uh, to butter. Not only its uh, modern-day presence in our kitchens, and, uh, but also uh, its long uh, and, and, and intriguing history, as well as its amazing variety, if, if one looks uh, around the world uh, to the uh, dizzying array of, of, of types of, of butter uh, from, from various cultures. The book is published by Algonquin Books, and again, it's called simply Butter, A Rich History. Elaine Kosrova, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. And I have to say, it's great to hear um, your description of the book and sort of your new butter appreciation, because my original title for the book was called Butter and Appreciation. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) that would have been good. But I like Butter a Rich History very much as well. I want to read a a quick moment that I especially love from uh, the first chapter of the book when you write this. uh, I want to see... You're, you're, you're talking about uh, how when one looks at a pasture and you see cows grazing, uh, it's sort of amazing that out of a cow eating grass can come golden butter. You write, there's a Rumpelstiltskin-like magic to these dairy <laughs> conversions. Even if modern science can explain the processes in cold detail, I find them no less dazzling. In fact... Uh, as I discovered writing this book, knowing all the intricate workings of animal nature and human endeavor that turn plant life into butter only added to my fascination. And yet, butter is uniformly taken for granted. It is common, after all. The girl next door, lovely but overlooked. Even for me, a food professional with more than two decades of experience as a pastry, pastry chef, test kitchen editor, and food writer, butter has long lived in the culinary shadows. My work paid and trained me to seek out the exotic, the celebrity foods, the next big thing, not a simple yellow stick that's in everyone's fridge. <laughs> I want you to tell our listeners what you go on to describe from there, an experience uh, that you had several years ago, which in a sense opened your eyes to just how fascinating and varied something as simple and as butter, in fact, is. Yes, happy to do that. Um, that was my aha moment. So I, at the time I was working for, so this would have been about nine years ago, I was working for a restaurant trade magazine as a food editor, 
And we did a lot of product samples for chefs, product tastings for chefs. And one day I had to sit down and do a tasting of butters. Uh, and some were imported, some were domestic butters. And, you know, it was kind of a routine thing to do these tastings. And I wasn't thinking, oh, you know, I mean, butter, it's so elemental, really, like, how interesting is this going to be? And I was actually quite astonished um, because I found that colors and the textures and the flavors had so many nuances. Um, it was no different than, you know, doing like a flight of Pinot Noir or something. It was really fascinating to me and kind of mystifying because I thought at the time, you know, how do I account for these differences? Butter is essentially cream that's just simply agitated. So how do you get these wonderful variations and nuances? And so that really got me started on, you know, paying attention to butter, which I had not done up until that time. And, of course, it sounds like you were uh, really unprepared for just... uh, what a complex story it is, even in the present day, let alone when one looks around the world and when one looks through history. I mean, I suspect butter ended up taking you on a ride for which you were really not fully prepared. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which was completely delightful and fascinating. And I have to say, it doesn't even feel like it's over because there are butter regions in the world I have not yet been to. You know, I traveled to about five different countries for this book, um, including Bhutan and India. But I'd love to get to North Africa and Ethiopia. They have their own particular um, history and and even now, you know, modern uses for butter. So, yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating, you know, and I, I just, I have to say I love the irony of the fact that this was right under my nose most of my life, this epic story, and I just never knew it was there. Mm. You do mention that you uh, traveled to three different continents uh, in uh, in search of sort of the uh, more hidden or obscure corners of the story and history of of butter. How did you, in a sense, know where to go? I mean, just take us through the process by which you you did all of the research and and field study that ultimately mm-hmm. led to this fascinating book being written. Well, that was very much helped by the fact that. In 2008, I was hired to be the editor of a new magazine all about cheese called Culture Magazine, and uh, I was with that magazine almost five years, so I spent a lot of time behind the scenes in the dairy world and first you know, became to, came to understand, oh, there's goat butter and there's sheep butter and actually there's water buffalo butter because I was you know, sort of embedded in the dairy world. And it was really through that association I began to just see the global picture of dairy uh, and, you know, came to understand there's yak butter. And and in history, there's even been things like reindeer butter. We don't really see that anymore. But um, So, yeah, just understanding the whole ruminant category of animals, when you, when you realize it's not just about cows, um, then you start to, you know, get the grand picture of what, butters are possible. One thing I appreciated, and I, I was just trying to, uh, to, to find it, uh, and I'm not seeing it now, but, but I, I remember you stating pretty clearly that uh, basically there's nothing wrong at all with the standard butter that most of us mm-hmm. buy in the grocery store. Absolutely. And I really appreciated the fact that you, you took a moment to say that, because 
I think it is far more common when somebody explores something like butter or cheese or bread or whatever it, it might be that that t- typically the implicit message and, and often the very explicit message as well is uh, you poor ignorant people you, you know yeah. who are you know, wasting your lives uh, consuming run of the mill ordinary butter when you could be enjoying you know yak butter from New Zealand or what whatever um, I really appreciate yeah. the fact that yeah. that you you are not out to, to 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 put down the normal butter that most of us normally consume. Uh, yeah, not at all. In fact, we should be really grateful for what the industrialists have done because they give us such a consistent product. You know, all of our cooking comes out the same. You know, it's a very clean, pure product. You know, before before this model, I mean, butter was really kind of all over the place. Um, you know, sort of pre-industrial age. Um, as far as quality and, and even you know it's um, even its safety to some degree. So you know I yeah I have no gripe at all you know a grudge against the industrialists. I'm not in favor of industrial dairying. I think you know I'd love to see smaller farms with you know less cows so they have lots of pasture to graze on. That that would be the ideal. But that's really a separate issue. You know when the cream comes to the butter plant it's treated really well in fact i was i didn't know this i was discovered in my research um i went to grassland dairy in fact which is in wisconsin and under began to understood that the cream that comes to the the factory is put through this um gentle tempering process and the i the point of that is to get just the right ratio of um soft and hard fats in the cream it's hard to imagine it cream has hard, hard fats, but they have those little crystalline fats. And if you have just the right ratio, you get that smooth, cohesive butter that we totally take for granted in the supermarket these days. So that's an extra step that came with modernization. Sometimes you can get lucky and have just the right ratio if you're making butter yourself. But, uh, you know, the, as I said, the industrialists have really perfected the process. Right. You tell us that... Uh Making butter is actually quite a, a a simple process, at least in some respects. Particularly, I think you tell us in comparison to, uh, for instance, making one's own cheese or making one's mm-hmm. own own yogurt. Can you just mm-hmm. explain, in a sense, the simplicity of the essential process by which butter is made? Yes, it's simply a process of agitation. Uh, you know, it doesn't require any cooking. It doesn't require any special equipment. You can literally take a glass jar, fill it half full of cream, and shake the heck out of it, and you'll get butter. Um, so and I think a lot of us have made it by accident, in fact, you know, just whipping cream too far. So that's how, really how simple it can be. And essentially what's happening during that agitation, no matter what equipment is doing the process, um, is you're you're basically breaking a tiny membrane that's around every single fat molecule, and that fa- that membrane is what keeps the kind of fat suspended in the liquid of the cream, it allows it to kind of float around. Um, but once you break that membrane by agitating it, the fats all come together. You know they want to sort of coalesce together. And that's what you see when, you know, if you've made butter and you suddenly see, oh, my gosh, there's 
pieces of butter and there's you know this liquid buttermilk left over um that's that's all it is that's all you do mm. of course you can pre-treat the cream and culture it um you know you can work it in different ways afterwards to get a diff- slightly different texture you know th- the actual churning process is the simplest part of butter making and you know the most straightforward it's what you do at before and after where you can get nuances in the butter and in your chapter called early churnings uh the subtitle says a lot from accident to precedent you you tell <laughs> us that uh, although it's certainly difficult if not impossible to really know for certain uh there's a very good chance that the first butter was created entirely by accident explain sort of the scenario that is most likely about butter's ultimate origination. Yes, well, so we're talking probably at least 9,000 years ago, if, if not earlier before that. And what we surmise is that a shepherd, you know, milking his goat or sheep, it, it wouldn't have been cows at that point because cows were domesticated later, um, but milking his herd you know, puts that milk then into um, a vessel. Usually it would have been a, a goat skin because they're not porous, so they can, you can use a goat skin as a sack to carry milk. And so the milk goes into this sack, you know, and it's, it's naturally starting to, to culture a little bit, to ferment a little bit because, of course, there's no refrigeration and there's all this wonderful bacteria around. Um, but at that point... The milk would have been, we're, again, we're painting this picture of the milk then being uh, put on the back of an animal or perhaps just on the back of the shepherd, and it gets, it gets walked, you know, up the hill, over the next hill, you know, for a good half hour, 45 minutes. So it's essentially rocking back and forth, and it's, it's agitating those fat molecules that I spoke of earlier. So that by the time the shepherd got to his destination and opened his pouch, you know, lo and behold, there were these floating morsels of what we call butter at the at the time. They, they didn't have a name, <laughs> and and it most certainly would have been um, white in color. It wouldn't have been golden because goat and sheep butter are um, typically white. You know, naturally white. So, so that's you know that's how we speculate. That's more or less how it happened. And of course, once butter was discovered in that way, it, it was immediately, you know, uh, thought to be delicious, of course, but it also turned out to have many practical uses, as fats did in the day. They were used for medicine, they were used uh, as lamp oil, they were used for waterproofing, you know, many different uses, and, and butter, so butter was, you know, highly valued. Mm. One thing I was trying to... Uh understand as I thought about the earliest days of, of butter and and even actually a little more recent in, in history for that matter is what sort of proportion of the milk that one could procure from one's own cows or goats or what, whatever animals you ha- you happen to have on hand what sort of proportion of that milk would have typically been utilized for butter versus consumed simply as milk or or converted into something like like cheese uh i mean would butter have been a a relatively modest amount of 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 what the the milk would have been used for 
Well, it depends on the, the culture um, and, and also the time in history that we'd be talking about. You know, in the Middle Ages, when urban centers began to develop, that's about the time when butter really became a commodity because before that, most people were living very close to the land and more and, and if they, you know, they were producing butter, they were the ones eating the butter. You know, it was very sort of hand-to-mouth existence, um, butter-wise. But when, so these urban centers started to develop and concentrate, you know, with population, they had to be, that, that was suddenly a market for foods to be brought in, not just butter, but, you know, many different foods. But at that point, you know, butter became even more valuable as a commodity, as a business, not just something that you made on the farm to sustain, you know, your family. Um, so, and, you know, I found that in, in most northern European cultures, butter became very much uh, a sort of, um, it became sort of, Part of you know, building the wealth of different nations in, in northern European regions, particularly Denmark, Ireland, Scandinavian countries, it was very much uh, a huge thriving butter industry, in some cases much more so than cheese. Mm. But when you move to the Mediterranean region, it's, it's less so because it's such an oil, oil-loving culture mm-hmm. in, around the Mediterranean. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Elaine Kostrova, and we are talking about her incredibly interesting book called Butter, A Rich History, which explores uh, the history of how butter came to be developed and the role that it has played in various cultures and countries all around the world, and uh, and through history, the way in which butter has been made has changed, and uh, the dizzying array of, 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 of types of butter and flavors of butter uh, so so vastly beyond just what we think of as the run-of-the-mill stick of butter that most of us have in our refrigerators. Um, Elaine Kostrova, I want to make sure to give you at least a couple of minutes to talk about the, the chapter in the book that surprised me the most, chapter mm-hmm. three, called Sacred and Spiritual, <laughs> in which you tell us in a way that we scarcely can believe uh, that butter has been uh, used in all kinds of symbolic ways uh, in in spiritual practice, uh, including something that I had had never heard of in, involving butter sculpture uh, mm. in in Tibet, which yeah. uh, has been, uh, I mean, a, 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 a much prized practice that that one can can still witness. Um, but first, more in general, just talk about mm. this aspect of of butter, which is so such an alien concept for most of us today. Yeah, I talk about mud, butter's metaphysical life. I, I have to say it was a big surprise for me. Um, I knew about Tibetan butter sculpting, as you mentioned, but I didn't realize if you go back much earlier um, to you know, 2500 B.C., you know, the ancient Sumerians had their own rituals that involved the use of butter, and then moving through history, you know, ancient history, the Vedic Aryans had different rituals, the Druids, the Hindus, the Buddhists. Um, just around the world, I found this universal custom of honoring butter in this way and, you know, celebrating butter uh, in, as a sacred tool. 
And I think much of the reason that has that developed was because butter making itself, as I mentioned, is very valuable for early peoples for various reasons, but it's also mysterious. You know, how is it that liquid milk, white milk, you know, suddenly can yield these beautiful, rich morsels of fat that's essentially invisible, you know, until you shake and rock the milk. And and at other times it wouldn't it wouldn't work. You know, butter making when you don't control the temperature very well and, and the culturing process, uh, you know, when again this is back in the day when it would have naturally been cultured because there was no refrigeration. So those things made butter making much more challenging, you know, thousands of years ago, even hundreds of years ago. So it was a temperamental process, but when it worked, it was like, whoa, you know, it's a bit like finding a pearl in an oyster. You know, how is this possible? Um, so I think, you know, that's at the heart of why butter was revered and used in so many sacred rituals and still continues today with Tibetan butter sculpting. Right. And what's really intriguing, I'm so glad you make this point towards the end of this chapter, again called uh, Sacred and Spiritual. You write, Remarkably, butter has held a heightened spiritual role throughout human history while simultaneously keeping its utilitarian place in everyday life. For as long as anyone can tell, butter has uniquely bridged the secular and the sacred, the scientific and the supernatural in vastly different cultures. Covering these dual narratives that stretch across time and place, I couldn't help but wonder why butter? Why did it become a global darling of both spirituality and domesticity? And I think that is such a good point because, in a sense, we're not talking about something that is incredibly rare and incredibly exotic and incredibly Mm -hmm. beautiful to look at. I mean, the way you open up an oyster and there's a pearl. Um, I mean, it's hard to think about butter in those terms. But as you say, because there is a bit of mystery that surrounds the process by which it comes into being. That may be at least one explanation for for why it has served this other function that uh, yeah. that most of us don't think about in, for instance, modern America. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I I also discovered that you know butter for some cultures, some of these spiritual um, groups, such as the Hindus, for instance instance the you know butter represented kind of this path to enlightenment uh, particularly ghee which is made from butter and used a lot in india it's basically butter oil but just as like you know the plant takes the grass i mean that's sorry the cow takes the grass uh, we take the milk from the cow you know we get um we get the cream from the cream we get the butter from the butter we get the ghee so this constant you know refinement down to something pure and golden um, was very symbolic for the Hindus. Hmm. I want to be sure to also have you talk about chapter four of your book, which is titled Handmaidens of Flavor, Women Build the Butter Trade. This is when we come to understand the very important role played for 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 many, many, many years by uh, someone known uh, as a dairy maid. First, I want you to talk about something that you point out in the chapter, namely the gender divide, which you say ran deep in the early 
dairy world? Deep and wide. Because, <laughs> again, I found it to be quite universal that it was taboo for men to have anything to do with the dairy arts, as we call them. I mean, milking the cow, processing the milk, that was very much a female domain because it was so closely tied to, or it is still closely tied to birth, lactation, fertility, you know, motherhood, essentially. So women had a complete monopoly on, on, you know, this kind of work. And, you know, through that, more than their many other chores, but through butter making, they gained, you know, some respect and status in the community because butter, after all, was really valuable. And, again, still quite mysterious. You know, it wasn't until the 1800s that we began to really understand what's happening on a, you know, chemical, chemistry, and molecular level. So, yeah, so this conferred to women, you know, some, as I said, some status that was really special. And, and you found, too, that it broadened their lives to some degree because if you were the dairy maids and dairy wives who, you know, made the butter and then... Um, often packaged it in a particular way using special uh, hand-carved butter molds, um, and then you would wrap these precious carved pieces of butter in soft lettuce leaves and bring it to market. So there was this, there was an aspect of sort of branding their butter and then bringing it to market and and being part of that whole economic scene as opposed to just being at home all the time. You know, it gave women a certain entree into into the business world, so to speak, and cash in hand. You know that they could control in their own um, in their own households. You know, so so butter did a lot for women in the early days. You know, of course, it was still hard work, but everything they did was hard, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, and and I appreciate, and of course, people who read your book can can see all the fascinating detail about. All that women did uh, in the in their sort of indoor responsibilities, and it's it's a staggering list. I mean, not that the men weren't working hard outside uh, on all kinds of other things, but I mean, there was this this incredible gauntlet that the typical uh, farm wife was was responsible for, and uh, and creating the butter was uh, was one of the most important uh, uh, aspects. And uh, and you talk about how uh, on the typical manor or, or, or estate that someone who was employed as a dairy maid would be uh, in a position that was certainly a step up at least from the more typical mm-hmm. servant in the household because uh, the dairy maid was charged with something quite important and, and in some respects at least uh, somewhat complex. Yes. Yeah. All my research showed, you know, if you... You were a good dairy maid. Um, you could always find a job anywhere, and that, that really wasn't many jobs for women in those days. So, in uh, in this chapter, you take a moment to talk about something that it's really pretty incredible. Uh, it involves one of history's most famous women and most pampered women, Marie Antoinette, mm-hmm. and uh, and what is regarded uh, as perhaps, in your words one of her most extravagant indulgences, her uh, Le Terrier d'Agrément, her pleasure dairy. (laughs) Uh, Just say a quick word about this. Mm. Uh, This is quite fascinating and also says a lot about uh, the place that butter might have 
uh, in a household like Marie Antoinette's? Mm, yes. Well, so this pleasure dairy was an actual construction in her in her little village uh, on the grounds of Versailles. She created this kind of bucolic little village called Hameau, and her pleasure dairy was at the centerpiece of this. Uh, and it was essentially a place where she would do a lot of informal entertaining, but it was inside. It was set up to be a working dairy, quite lavish, though. In fact, it was, you know, marble everywhere and porcelain milk buckets and, you know, the finest of, of every kind of tool you could imagine. And it's, you know, it's documented that she would go there with her, her ladies, her ladies-in-waiting, and they would play at making butter and a little ice cream, maybe, cheese, things like that. Um, so, you know, it was both recreation and also entertainment, you know, right on the grounds of Versailles. And, you know, this this started a trend, basically, among very wealthy people in Europe to create these ornamental dairies, as they were known, pleasure dairies. And often there was actual real dairy right nearby um, where actual dairy maids would, you know, create the real product um, because... I don't think Marie Antoinette was quite the experienced hand at making um, butter and cheese. So, so it was a little bit of, you know, dairy staging. Um, but, you know, she loved it. Apparently she, you know, loved to let her hair down, and her husband built her a second one uh, at another estate, which she never actually got to finish or enjoy. Right, um, didn't live long enough to enjoy long that. Enough for that. Yes. As you finish out this particular conversation, you begin talking about something that's also uh, kind of gives us some insight into this whole topic of butter, namely what you call celebrity butters that were eagerly sought by food sophisticates in Europe and North America. I mean, certain certain butters from certain butter producers that were regarded as just essential you know you if if you had enough money to procure such wonderful butter it's simply something you had to have i want you in particular to talk about something that, that i'd never heard of a parisian specialty of perfumed butter mm-hmm. uh just tell us a, 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 a quick word about what what this would involve yeah well one thing i have to explain is that it was very common for these celebrity butters of the 18th and 19th centuries to be um, very lightly salted, which was completely unusual. You know, most of the butter in that in those times was heavily salted because that was the main means of preservation. Again, there's no refrigeration, and butter is most plentiful in spring and summer when it's the most warm outside. Um, so to get a butter that was less salty, and I mean like three or four times saltier than what we are used to, to get one that's you know much less salty than that was uh, was really precious and special and had to be sold in you know small, tiny little rolls you know for quite a bit of money, so they could actually taste the cream you know taste the butter and not just salt per se. So when you start out then with a much more um, you know mild sweet butter. Uh, you're able to infuse it with various things because the salt isn't interfering with, you know, flavor. So apparently the butters uh, in this particular part of the region outside of Paris were 
layered with, um, you know, they put down a layer of butter and then a layer of flower petals and then more butter and more flower petals, and they would wrap this in muslin and allow it to infuse for a day or more. I have not yet tried this, but <laughs> it's on my list, to-do list, to see how, <laughs> how this works. Um, yeah, that was um, one of the things they did you know, outside of Paris. I don't think anyone else was doing that in particular, but <laughs> every country had its, you know, even in the States, the area around Philadelphia was called the Butter Belt, and it was considered, you know, excellent butter from, mm. from that particular region. We're speaking with Elaine Kosrova author of a fascinating book called Butter, A Rich History. You know, it just occurred to me this second that uh, that in, in the house where I grew up, down in the basement, we actually had an old-fashioned butter churn. I have not thought of this in years. We haven't had it in decades, but the, the bottom was uh, sort of pottery, and uh, and there was a wooden plunger, so it was a, mm-hmm. a typical kind of plunger butter churn. And I have no idea. I should ask my dad when I see him uh, if yeah. he remembers where we got that. Uh, but but uh, so at least to that extent, we had at least the roughest notion that is my siblings and I of uh, of this is something that you would use to churn butter. Uh, what we certainly didn't know, uh, but we would know from reading your book, is. Uh, the, the array of, of different kinds of churns uh, that were developed over the years. Although I think you would probably hasten to add that all of them essentially did the same thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, churning is churning, uh, even if it happens in some kind of fancy stainless steel contraption. Uh, does it make much difference in the creation of butter in terms of the kind of churn that is used? Well... You know, there's so many variables, it's often hard to, you know, pin down, is it this one thing that made that butter different or better? Because, you know, the fat molecules, as I said before, the soft and hard fats, those are always shifting, and um, and cream changes throughout the lactation season from, you know, spring through summer, its, its qualities change. So it's a little bit hard to say, uh, that this churn or that churn, you know, has made the butter this particular, say, texture. It's often about texture when you're, when you're talking about churning, you know, using different kinds because we do, the gold standard is certainly to have a velvety, smooth texture, and if you over-churn a butter, you know, if you keep, if, you, if it breaks, you know, the butter comes and you keep churning it and churning it and churning it, you will end up with eventually a greasy butter because you will have um, just um, released too many of those soft fats. So there is a certain uh, technique that the butter maker develops, you know, depending on what kind of churn they're using. So, you know, I've used a food processor. I've used old-fashioned churns. I've, you know, shaken shaken it, you know, a really primitive way. Um... And I do see, I do see differences, but I can't say precisely because the cream isn't always the same. Mm. You do take a few pages in your book, in Chapter Six, called "The Revolution," to not only talk about some of the breakthroughs in technology that changed the way in which butter is created, but you also talk about uh, the emergence of a, of a competitor. Uh, mm-hmm. 
<laughs> namely margarine, or or the more proper term of oleo margarine. Mm-hmm. Uh, just sketch first of all uh, the difference between standard butter uh, and and oleo margarine, which of course resembles it in so many different ways, and uh, and uh, nearly supplanted it <laughs> for a time. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, there, I think there could be a whole book based on <laughs> the margarine and, and, and butter battles that uh, went on for about 90 years in this country. And by battles, I mean mostly legal battles. Through The butter makers tried through uh, le- legislation and regulation and taxation to, to drive the margarine producers out of business. But just to back up a little bit, I think most people would be surprised to learn that the first margarine which was invented in 1869, was created by a French chemist. And it was made with beef fat uh, and a little bit of milk and some natural food coloring and salt. So it was quite different than the margarine that we know of today, which is made with vegetable oils. Hmm. Um, Yeah, and it was developed early on by this French chemist because Napoleon III wanted a, a spread that would be more affordable to feed his troops and that would travel better. But also margarine, you know, immediately kind of gained um, popularity when it came to the States, and that was like at the 1885, around that time, um, because there was quite a lot of bad butter on the market and the low quality, and this would have been like moldy butter, rancid butter, dirty butter, um, there's quite a lot of that on the market, and that was what uh, only the poor could afford. You know, they couldn't afford the better butters. And so when margarine came on the scene, it it was more palatable. You know, it kept it kept better. Um, it was just it just tasted better, and it was it was quite affordable. So it it was immediately popular with people. You know, who who couldn't afford good butter. Um, and then from that sort of uh, consumer base, it started to grow and, and you know, gain more popularity as, it, as the technology changed. Right. At a margarine. So explain the, uh, the, uh, the length to which the dairy industry went to fight off the challenge of butter. I mean, of oh. margarine. I mean, oh. going so far as to have it in some locations criminalized. Yeah, well, in Canada, it was completely outlawed. Just, just you know, here in the states, we went from state to state. Each each state was making its own regulations, and and some of them would eventually be undone by federal courts because they were preposterous. Things like margarine had to be dyed pink or black so as not to be confused with with butter, but you know, clearly to make it very unappealing as a <laughs> as a food as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's a it's a fascinating story of basically the rise of the special interest state. Right. You know? you know, I as you describe this this fascinating sort of subplot of how in in many places, I mean, in I think you say at one point thirty states, uh, you you couldn't dye uh, the margarine to make it look like butter, and then in some states it had to be dyed an unappetizing color like. Yeah. Uh, red or black or pink, and you you make a great observation here when you say the color wars constituted an attack on the poor as well as the oleo producers, for its effect was to stigmatize margarine and its users 
who couldn't afford real butter. That is, at a glance, you would immediately know, oh, dear, that person can't afford real butter because they're Mm -hmm. spreading pink margarine on their toast. Uh, I I mean, this is is a, 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 a small chapter of our history that most of us know nothing about. Right. Yeah, and it wasn't actually all that long ago. You know, in Wisconsin, I believe it's still on the books that you can't serve margarine in a public place unless someone asks for it, unless a customer asks for it. But the the prisons and the schools have always had butter, um, unlike many other states where margarine's been used Hmm. in those institutions. You also tell us that uh, during the Second World War, when butter was rationed, there were all kinds of means by which uh, families would uh, would uh, extend their butter supply by uh, by uh, using things like unflavored gelatin and and, and milk mm-hmm. to, to to stretch it further. But I want to make sure you have a, a moment or two to talk about another kind of butter battle. That is the the battle over whether or not butter is good for us. There, of course, uh, in, in in quite recently. Uh, all kinds of things written that would discourage us from using butter. I mean, the the uh, contrary uh, advice of someone like Julia Child aside, uh, uh, you you tell us that in fact uh, to do away with butter altogether uh, is really a mistake. Yes, well, I think you know it's it's a complex phenomenon. You know what happened, what's been happening in with fat in our diets in the last 60 years. And, and I do want to mention I have a degree in food and nutrition that I got in the early 80s. I graduated in the early 80s. Um, and in researching this chapter, I basically had to unlearn virtually everything I was taught in the 80s about fat and cholesterol and calories and sugar. Um, there was so many things that we surmised but didn't have the facts you know, that turned out to be, you know, theories that have led us down the wrong road. And and that's that's why, you know, people are starting to question this whole anti-fat campaign because we're not any healthier for it. In fact, I believe for the first time in our history, the projected longevity of Americans is, is expected to go down, like within the next 10 years, mm. um, because of the incidence of diabetes and heart disease and well diabetes and um, obesity which which lead to heart disease um, but and this is a direct result of having so many carbohydrates in our diets particularly sugar and sugar has flooded our diets because it was essentially put into many foods to replace the fat that we took out we made foods you know uh, lean but kind of flavorless and less satisfying. But if you add more sugar, you know, you can make up for some of that um, that blandness. So, you know, the fact that we went down this road is, is a story that begins, like, in the 1960s, particularly with one man, um, Ansel Keys, who was a physiologist. And, you know, he asserted that if you looked at countries around the world where there was uh, little heart disease, there was less fat in their diet. Hmm. And, you know, he put up a chart to, you know, this was at World Health Organization, big meeting, and, you know, put up this chart and showed this graph, you know, that looked like a direct correlation. You eat fat, you get heart disease. However, what was noted after was that he had access to 
the uh, data from 22 countries, and he only listed seven countries, the ones that supported his hypothesis. But if you look at countries like France and Sweden and, you know, um, Scandinavian countries where they were eating quite a lot of fat, they had less than half the amount of heart disease that we did in the States. Mm. So he was pointing to the wrong smoking gun uh, in making his conclusions. Well, it turns out, but, you know, it, it made a lot of sense to people at the of time. Course. Of course, absolutely. You, fat, you, you know, you get fat in your body, but now we know it's nothing like that, really. It's so much more, you know, wonderfully complex. Right, and um, we can read more about that, of course, in the chapter called Role Reversal. Yes. Uh, yes. To finish up for just our last couple minutes, uh, I want you to just touch on the really interesting chapter called The Modern Buttersmith. Uh, small batches, big fans, in which you talk about this relatively modern phenomenon, which in some ways harkens back to an earlier time, but uh, the ever-growing community of buttersmiths, uh, as you term them, that that are uh, creating, uh, in a sense, a whole new uh, industry. Just say a quick word about what's out there and uh, and and how we can figure out what's worth exploring. Yeah, I love that, you know, now in the 21st century, we have this incredible diversity. On the one hand, you know, we can rely on our industrial butters, but on the on the other side are these wonderful handmade artisanal butters um, that are popping up around the world. Partly, in some, in many cases, it's to support the family farms that need to create value-added products to survive. You know, they can't just get by on milk anymore. So uh, they're going back to you know, making cheese and, and butter. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the reason I traveled to so many places, in fact, was to see these sort of, I liken it to the craft beer movement, it's sort of the craft butter movement. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating and, and wonderful to see, you know, these very sort of personal takes on butter. One of the most interesting was uh, this guy who calls himself the Butter Viking and He's Swedish, but he makes butter in England, and he's he does these wonderful cultured products. Uh, he does a butter mayo. He does, you know, he really plays like with the whole category of butter possibilities. Hmm. Well, we want to mention also that your book includes some really wonderful looking recipes, uh, and uh, also a couple of different interesting appendices, including one called some recommended butters in which mm-hmm. you spell out some some really interesting uh, uh, varieties of butters that might be worth exploring. And another appendix, which is called Butter in Other Words, in which you share with us this wonderful array of terms <laughs> from around the world for this thing called butter, this yeah. thing we are so quick to take for, for granted, but I think we're a lot less uh, apt to do so uh, once reading your, your incredibly interesting book. Again, it's called Butter. A Rich History. It's published by Algonquin Books. It includes plenty of photographs and diagrams and illustrations which uh, further enrich uh, this thorough portrait of butter. And the author, Elaine uh, Kasrova. Elaine Kasrova, I've thoroughly enjoyed both your book and this opportunity to speak with you about it. Thank you so much. Me me too. Thank you. Clearly, you read the book and appreciated it. That means a lot to me. Thank you. You're welcome.